So, Joel, we're headed to the big NASCAR race this weekend. So when this comes out, the race would have already occurred down at the Texas Motor Speedway. Uh, but we are sponsoring, part sponsor, of one of the NASCAR cars uh, with uh, Kyle Weatherman. He will be number 91. So if you go back and watch <laughs> on YouTube, I think you can watch the race afterwards. Uh, you'll see our little uptime podcast on the side of the car. I've never, never watched a NASCAR race before, but this this might be just the push that I need. So, um, Alan, you'll have to tell me how I can how I can tune in and watch this guy. We can Skype it to you somehow. But the NASCAR is actually taking some really good action on reducing CO two emissions through the whole operations. They they have a sustainability person that is working in there. They're making a lot of change with the NASCAR, and I like watching NASCAR. It's a lot of fun, but it's also sort of rewarding to know that something you watch like that is trying to make a difference and they're doing a lot, making a lot of changes internally. So yes, uh, they do drive internal combustion engine cars for now, but uh, the vast majority of the operations is going to be carbon neutral, I believe by 2035. So that is a pretty short time frame to change as many operations as they have going. And that's commendable. So we thought we'd help them out and we helped Kyle out a little bit and we're going to be down at the Texas Motor Speedway. So we'll take some pictures and send them to you, Rosemary. What's your guess, Alan, about when they'll go electric in NASCAR? Actually, probably sooner rather than later. Spinoff series first. It'll be like Formula E. How long do they drive for? At Kyle's level, they drive about two hours. That's doable now, yeah. You know, the thing about electric vehicles is they accelerate so darn fast that it would make the races a little more exciting, right? That, that the race tightness would really pick up. Well, more news from Siemens Gamesa as they're expecting a $5 billion loss uh, for some turbine problems. And those turbine problems are still tied to, from what we hear, the 4X and 5X platform. Uh, blades have wrinkles in them, and there are some pieces of debris and some bearings, which are a huge problem. Uh, there are approximately 2,100 4X and about 800 5X models affected with about Somewhere between 15 and 30% of them having issues. So that's, that's a huge number, right? It's about 900 turbines in, in, in a worst case. Uh, so there are some changes happening within Siemens Gamesa where they are limiting onshore turbine sales. In fact, they've restricted it. It sounds like they've restricted it to a subset of their customer base to, to manage the problem until they figure out the quality problems. In fact, uh, Siemens uh, has said, uh, their CEO has said that uh, that they sold wind turbines that were not sufficiently tested. Now, Phil, <laughs> I, I don't think that's a good idea to say that. And I, I, I'm having a hard time with the certification bodies that are around that, uh, hearing that you know, Siemens Camesa thinks that they've had, that they under-tested something uh, for cert. And then secondarily, it seems like they're trying to mitigate the amount of lawyers that are going to be involved. And in fact, it was you who sent me a note saying it looks like they're hiring people to be on site to manage warranty claims on new wind farms. You want to just give us a little background there? Sure. So they, they since coming out and making these announcements, which has dated back now about five or six months, um, 
tied into, you know, their financial disclosures and other um, disclosures they've made regarding the, the status on the manufacturing quality issues. They have since uh, put out job postings on different boards uh, for people who would be in charge of warranty claim processing on behalf of the OEM. Um, that's interesting because it's not the insurance company hiring additional, you know, underwriters or claims adjusters. Uh, this is the OEM having to step up because these are all relatively new um, blades and new products. Uh, everything's under warranty and it's under the warranty period and, and everything is going to have to be covered uh, by the OEM, which is why they've been, you know, making all these uh statements uh, when they when they release quarterly results regarding the the financial health and, and status uh with everything so it's it's a challenge because uh the company i it sounds like still doesn't quite have their arms fully around the the entire issue i think they've understood um some of the the product quality issues that they've had I think they've identified some of the manufacturing quality issues they've had. Um, they, I, it sounds like they still don't have a clean, quote-unquote, supply chain um, that they can pull from, which is why they would put a moratorium on selling uh, turbines to specific customers uh, in, in regards to, you know, if they don't have the availability of uh, high-quality materials to be able to manufacture the blades, then they can't fulfill orders that they were otherwise contractually obligated to do um, or would be with with new product sales uh, so it's it's a setback um, but it's a relatively minor one in the grand scheme of what they have going on and um, the steps that they've needed to take to kind of bolster investor confidence I think they've they've done um, they've made some questionable choices I think in their PR uh, but they've they've seemed to have done an, an adequate job in terms of diagnosing what the issues are uh, and and at least attempting to resolve them. Rosemary, what does this mean when they say that they didn't test the the for example the blades sufficiently? Does that mean they need to go back and do all the structural testing and evaluation again? Do you say that because you have a quality issue that you're trying to deal with and sort of put the blame on the the tests that were run i, I don't i don't know where siemens goes when they say this because it sounds like they would have to restart the certification process yeah i'm assuming that it must be the process that wasn't tested properly because they would have had to have done um full um yeah full size blade tests to pass their yeah certification to get the blade certificate they would need to do a st static test where they just pull on a, a blade um, and check that it you know, deflects the amount that it's supposed to and it doesn't break. Um, and then they do a fatigue test both in flap-wise, which is like with the yeah the, the flat part of the blade going up and down, and then edge-wise where they you know, rotate at 90 degrees. Um, and those take months to do. They just kind of set it off wobbling and um, watch it, um, monitor it with strain gauges, uh, and, yeah, check that there isn't any damage over that period and that everything is performing the way that it's supposed to. And they can't avoid that. I mean, you definitely have to do that for every new blade that gets certified. You have to do those tests. Um, and 
I mean, it's just one one blade that gets tested in that way. So it's possible that they had um, a problem with their process, which meant that every blade didn't turn out exactly the same. And I would say that that's the, the problem, that they tested a blade that didn't have these wrinkles in it. Um, but then they found out uh, after they've already rolled out, uh, you know, a bunch of these blades into the field, they found out that actually like a quite a significant chunk of them are getting some sort of problem in the uh, manufacturing process that results in wrinkles. Joel, as a chief commercial officer dealing with the business aspects of this, how do they navigate the quality issues, the customer issues, the, the not being able to sell product as fast as they want to issue? How do you package that into a, a, a nice framework? I think the, tr the trouble here is what Phil said earlier is they made some questionable PR moves, right? Like in this article we're talking about, they have the company planning to present the results of a strategic review in November. You would want to think that they would keep that, keep some of these, these details that they're just slowly letting out at eh, 2100, 4X models, 800, 5X models, 1.6 billion. Um, we're going to work with certain people, not with other people before they actually put this strategic review out. Because that has a lot of economic and commercial implications, right? When that thing comes out, then the whole truth, and I think that's another day to watch the stock price, right? To see what's going to happen here. So, uh, you know, them saying that they're only going to work with certain customers right now, restricting new onshore wind turbine sales. I would imagine these are the big guys that they have really good relationships with. Um, like, you know, and, and I don't know exactly who they are, but I would be willing to bet it's a Nextair, an RWE, a, you know, an Invenergy, uh, Iberdrola, someone like some some players like that, where they know that they have, if they can keep them happy, there's a large order book coming down the road. So they want to make sure they stay close to those people um, while reducing their risk. Because this is the, this is what the whole thing is. And you're sitting in the C-suite boardroom right now at Siemens. It's how do we hedge risk? How do we continue to be, you know, viable in the marketplace while fixing our engineering problems and fixing our economic and commercial woes that we're staring at right now, right? So if it is these customers that you want to make sure that you keep them close by, they're probably sitting at the table, to be honest with you, the larger players of some of these larger companies trying to figure out what's going to happen with, with Siemens. I mean, it's going to be a hard pill to swallow. There's just going to be, as this thing came out back in August, um, and they're going to release this new report in November. It's three months of kind of thinking and figuring out, and I hope they've got a plan by then. Yeah, I think we all do, because we need Siemens Gamesa to be in the game for a, a long time. and. Right now, it seems like the short game is really killing them. At least in the U.S., there was uh, Jochen Eichholt and some others from Siemens visiting clients on basically a PR tour in the last few months, right? So they're doing a lot of things to try to uh, reduce the impact here. But, I mean, there's just some, some numbers that they have to stare at and figure out. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Well, back in July, the Customs and Border Patrol issued a ruling uh, allowing foreign vessels to transport monopile foundations from U.S. ports to offshore sites not previously attached to the seabed and then install them. Uh, the Customs and Border Patrol does not consider offshore sites beyond three nautical miles from 
the U.S. coast to be U.S. points. So transport to them by foreign vessels is allowed. Okay. All right. So let me get that straight. So a, a foreign vessel can take things off U.S. shore and put them out into the ocean, particularly foundations. All right. So that was that was the ground rules. Now, back back in July, uh, CBP also said that the jack-up installation vessels could jack up before uh, the the ships arrive with the with the parts, essentially. Okay, so they could plant themselves in the in the ocean bottom. Well, they changed their ruling. <laughs> and this is how crazy the U.S. is at the moment. Well, they had they had uh, some protests from the American Maritime Partnership. Right. So they're an active group at the moment, and they filed a grievance with Customs and Border Patrol and says, hey, time out. That's not right. So the Customs and Border Patrol came back and said they modified the ruling, and they confirmed that uh, if, if an offshore site without prior attachments, uh, things in the ground, are still considered pristine and foreign vessels can deliver and install mon monopiles there. However, the anchoring of the installation vessel uh, necessarily doesn't change that. However, the jackup vessel uh, can't be attached to the seabed before installing monopiles, and it and it has to be colored green on a Tuesday. Right. So it, it's a timing thing. It's a weird thing. Like, well, once they plant the jackup vessel into the seabed, well, then that becomes U.S. territory. Then it's then it's a foreign vessel between two U.S. points. It's something like that. It is the world's craziest thing. Alan, this is the most preposterous nonsense I've I've heard. It's a it's a technicality, right? It's a technicality, and they got around it by just saying, "Well, the the vessels, the the Danish or Norwegian vessels, or whatever they're using, uh, Taiwanese vessels that are hauling parts from U.S. shore out to the in the water, the, the jackup vessels can't be attached to the sea bottom when they arrive." I think that's what's happened here. So that so does the barge have to dock up next to them, and then they can plant the legs, and then they can pick off the barge. Because they're not going to plant, unplant, plant, unplant, plant. They're not going to do that. But I guess if you're, I don't know, that's, it's so stupid. That just makes the cost, that just makes the LCOE go up. That's all it does. You're going to delay, delay. That's going to make the installation process longer. That's just silly. It's just silly nonsense, right? It's just a, t it's, it's a way of getting around a, a crazy old law so that it, it is quote unquote legal. But the problem is, is that this, you know, this is not the last of this. This is going to continue on for a few more months, right? There has to be a, a pushback on this new thing. It, it really gets down to what you define as U.S. territory, right? And so as soon as something hits the ocean bottom, then it becomes U.S. territory. I think that's what the logic is. If they had a floating, floating ship out there, could it install wind turbines? And I think all this would go away. The answer is do not use a jackup. Use a, D, a DP3 vessel. That's what I'm saying. So a, D a DP3 vessel for the listeners would be like, if you've ever seen the movie Deepwater Horizon. Now, this is a, this is a, a gross movie Hollywood part of it. But when, they're, when, the, when the ship starts to move off point and the lady's in there and she's going like, we're going to stay on point. And she's trying to pilot the boat or the, the, the whole drill rig to stay still. It doesn't work like that. That's not, there's no haptic feedback in the controls for the... The drill vessel, however, that is drilling vessels are DP3 vessels. So, so what a DP3 means is it's dynamically positioned in three in, with three redundancies. So you have um, like multiple GPS systems on the boat. So you may have a GPS that only runs on GPS satellites, and you may have a system that only runs on like Galileo and GLONASS satellites with different corrections coming in. So if one of the satellite systems goes down, 
the other one still holds it in place. That would be DP2, so you'd have two systems. DP3 would be the other one where you can actually plant acoustics on the seafloor and range off of those to stay in place as well. So if you have satellite system, satellite system, plus a uh, anchor to the, to the seafloor, a, a virtual anchor, then the vessel can hold itself really tightly on its technically what would be called like an autopilot. And you can plant jackets with a vessel like that. Like that, that happens regularly. Does it also help the floating offshore wind effort? Like all this nonsense go away as soon as you start just towing out turbines that are floating. But you still got to anchor them. You still got to moor them. That's going to that's gonna get into a different set of, you know, or subset of the regulations under the Jones Act. Um, and the, I mean, we don't actually need foreign vessels to be able to do that kind of mooring. Uh, that's, that's the good news. You know, we do have uh, service operation vessels in the U.S. that would be capable of being repurposed for uh, that type of mooring activity, um, which is good. Uh, but, you know, this goes back to this whole argument of if we don't have the people that have the specific knowledge and we don't have the vessels that have specific capabilities, then why do we have a Jones Act in place that is, as Joel just said, driving up the cost of LCOE at a point in time when, you know, these companies are already pulling out of projects because it's already too friggin' expensive to to build it in the first place. I, I this whole thing does make does not make any sense to me. And I you you know, you all know my position on the Jones Act to begin with, and I've I've taken a lot of heat about uh you know, wanting to either ban it or put a moratorium on it or something for, for the next 10 years or something that allows and facilitates the industry to get off the ground, so to speak, so that we can actually build an industry and then you can reinstitute it if you're, you're trying to protect American jobs. You know, there are ways of, of accommodating this that doesn't damage the industry. And that's the biggest issue is it's slowing down the pace at which we can we can achieve the energy transition it's slowing down project deployment it's driving up cost it's making everyone reluctant to want to do anything in this market but one piece of simple math for 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 people listening as well if this jack up jack up and barge juggling act takes an extra say 2 hours on site these installation vessels cost 20 30 and 40,000 an hour so think about the math there. All right. I was thumbing through PES Wind Magazine, and I came across this article by FiberSale, and it was talking about monitoring blade and blade def deflection and blade shapes. And I was trying to discern as an electrical engineer, like, how does this work and why do I care? Uh, and I thought, well, Rosemary ought to know. And Rosemary, from what I can tell from the article, which is full of cool pictures and tons of information, but it sounds like there's fiber optics that's being added to the blade, that they're using that to, to, to measure how the blade moves as, as the blade, as all three blades rotate, and then hooking that to a CMS system so they can interpret the blade movement as it equates to structural issues. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, um, it does. And it's something, uh, the technology has been around for a while, let's say at least 10 years um, that, yeah, we've kind of recognized the possibility and that this would be nice information to have and manufacturers have um, released products with this technology or something similar. 
Um, so that's all that's all good. Um, I'm not 100% sure of what the difference is with fiber cell compared to some of the other attempts before. Well, it sounds like they are uh, able to monitor all the aspects of the blade. Like they're, they're measuring the full length of the blade, the deflection and twisting. And I thought the twisting part was interesting because that seems like that's one of the failure modes we don't understand very well. And that monitoring how the blade, especially these longer blades, how they twist and get in these weird sort of secondary vibration modes that have been a problem for some of the blades. Like when the blades, some of the blades stop, they have this issue where they're bending or twisting in a unique way that's not not happy for them. Does that does that make sense then to sort of load it full of instrumentation so you can detect issues, particularly on new blades? I mean, I'll give you the good example here. 5X blade, Seams Gamesa, it's having issues. I don't even know what the issue is right now, but wouldn't you want to put the instrumentation system in like this to help identify that and track it? So, yeah, if you put some fiber optic sensors in the blade so you know exactly where the blade tip is, then you'll be able to potentially pitch the blade as it's going past the tower if it's bending a lot. So then you could um, make sure that it, it doesn't bend as much um, when it's going around the tower and you can kind of control that way. So you could have a more flexible blade, which is nice for a, bit, a bunch of different structural reasons and cost reasons and still not have to worry about the blade hitting the tower. And so that was tried. Um, at least I know that um, at LM Wind Power, they had a project like that quite a while ago. And, um, you know, there is at least one wind farm with this technology in it. And it works, but um, it, it is complicated. And so it did... Um, require a lot of extra expense and these were installed in in the factory which is going to be obviously the cheapest way to do it because the blades you know already on the ground and open and everything so you put the the sensors in but then obviously the more sensors that you've got the more data that you've got going into your control system and if sensors start failing then that can cause a problem in the past i have kept it pretty simple i think just mostly trying to look at where the tip of the blade is but then it sounds like fiber sale is taking it a step further to solve some other problems, which are legitimate problems that the industry has, which is that you don't really know how a, a blade deflects in reality. You can't test a wind turbine blade full scale in a wind tunnel because, you know, like an aeroplane wing, you can test um, in, a, in a wind tunnel because it's a simpler aerodynamic problem. Your wind turbine blade is rotating at the same time as the wind is coming in on it. So you can't really just scale things down um, and get your aerodynamics and your blade structure to kind of all scale at the same rate. So um, that makes it hard to really know exactly what does your blade look like when it's under actual operational loading. I think it would be really good to see uh, you know, a research program where you rolled out a few turbines with heavily instrumented blades to be able to check the structural deformation. Let me go back to something you said earlier, which is if you know how your blade is moving, you can actually pull fiberglass structure out of it, make it lighter, make it, make it more flexible, which would then in turn make a, a lighter, cheaper blade, less material, right? That seems like a huge cost savings for putting a couple pieces of fiber optic in if you're able to do it in the factory. Why wouldn't you do that? The, the control systems we have today for turbines are so much more advanced than 20 years ago. They're crazily advanced. And with all the AI things that are happening, we had autonomous driving cars at the moment. It seems like we could manage handling a wind turbine blade pretty easily. 
right? Yes, that's what everybody thought. And um, so it was a, a big, big project, a lot of people working on it for a lot of years because it seemed like such a slam dunk. But it's one of those projects where every step of the way, it's more complicated than you thought it was going to be um, and costs a little bit more than you thought it was going to be, a little bit less reliable. And um, it wasn't as popular in sales as people thought it was going to be either. And so, you know, all of that just added up to it, just not making sense. The number of engineers that need to be dedicated to keep, um, you know, a program like that running that. It was in this instance, it was judged not worth it, but definitely the potential is there. And if something changed, I would um, suggest that, yeah, it's the the operating system that needs to change. um, And the main thing is the reliability of the sensors. Well, you can learn more about FiberSail and a lot of other great new innovations in the latest PES Wind. And uh, this this latest issue is full of great stuff. So check it out. You can actually just go get a free copy yourself at PESWind.com. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts. So you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PESWind at PESWind.com. Autonomous underwater robots have been contracted for a site investigation survey at the U.S.'s first floating offshore wind farm in Morrow Bay, California. Equinor, uh, the Norwegian energy company, secured a two-gigawatt lease for the project, marking the first offshore wind lease sale in the U.S. West Coast and supporting commercial-scale offshore floating wind development. Uh, The Morrow Bay wind farm has the potential to power approximately 750,000 U.S. households. Now, in order to check out the ocean bottom, and, and so the ocean on the West Coast of the United States is pretty deep, uh, Equinor signed a contract with Ocean Infinity, a marine robotics company, to deploy multiple autonomous underwater vehicles for the survey of the floor. Uh, the AUVs are modular robots that can operate independently, reaching depths beyond human divers' capabilities and is equipped with sonar, depth sensors, and cameras. Now, Joel... This sounds super sci-fi to me that we have a bunch of drones running around the bottom of the ocean floor looking for, uh, I guess, rocks or deposits or unevenness. What are, what are they exactly looking for here with these scans? Ocean Infinity um, saw – this is – Ocean Infinity started as a company only six, seven years ago. They, st- they saw a gap in actually the oil and gas space. There's a group called the Nippon Foundation, and they want to – they have a seabed – what is the goal? Seabed 2050 or something? But they want to map 30% of the seabed of the entire world by 2050, I think is the goal. And I have to don't, – don't quote me on that one because I can't remember what it is. Because this, we know less about the seabed than we know about the surface of the moon, right? So Ocean Infinity cut – because classically, you're just saying like, hey, we're going to put a multi-beam echo sounder on a big ship and we're going to drive that ship around. Well, they saw a, a kind of a gap and there was a company called Kongsberg. If you've been in the maritime world at all, Kongsberg, big Norwegian tech, technical company, they build all kinds of stuff, navigate a lot of navigation stuff, some robotics and whatnot. Uh, a lot of things for de- defense sector and, and, what, and what as well. They created a vehicle, uh, call it an AUV, autonomous underwater vehicle called the Hugin, H-U-G-I-N. And the Hugans are these big, bright orange little sub. They look like torpedoes, right? 
what does Hugen mean in Norwegian? So they're these, they're these, these big um, orange torpedo looking things that can dive. They have them rated now all the way up to 6,000 meters of water depth. But I think the majority of the units, yeah, the majority of the units that Ocean Phineas has are like 4,500 meter rated and they cost like six to $10 million a piece. So what those vehicles can do is they can take all that multi-beam echo sounder and all the, the magnetic sensors and all these other tools that they used to put on ships and put them on that submarine and now sink it to the bottom. So when you get closer to the bottom, you can get more higher resolution. The other thing that Ocean Infinity figured out is, well, if we just deploy positioning systems from the vessel up top, we can launch six or eight or 10 of these at a time and use it as a, as a force multiplier. So now when you used to have this big boat out there cruising around with 50, 60 people on it, collecting one stream of data, now you got that same 50 or 60 people collecting six, eight, 10 streams of data in much higher resolution and covering a much, much, much larger footprint on the ocean floor. So now you can map larger areas of the ocean in deeper depths way faster by having all of these submarines out there. And that's what they're doing here. So they'll take one big vessel, the Ocean Infinity, they have two big vessels. They'll take one of them and they'll bring it over there and they got six or eight of these Hoogans on and they bloof, they start launching them out the back, tracking them and then surveying with them. And it's, a, it's really kind of really cool and impressive. Ocean Infinity, great company. They've also started making what's called the Ocean Infinity Armada fleet, which is a fleet of vessels. They've built three or four of them now that are 75 meter long vessels that are designed to be completely uncrewed. There's not a person on them. Wow. They can put these Hoogans on those as well. So they send that ghost ship out with the ghost AUVs. They dump those in the water and they can, and they're like, they, they were involved in all kinds. They've been finding all kinds of cool stuff with these things like uh, submarines, ships, a lot of shipwrecks and stuff. They've been finding them. So what they'll do for Econor here, another Norwegian company, is it will be a much cheaper and much more accurate and high resolution data set for site characterization of this Morrow Bay area and it's going to be by far the best data set that's ever been collected there um and i would i would be i would imagine since ocean infinity mobilizes a ship to that corner of the world to do that they'll be calling everybody else that has a lease on the a lease on the west coast for offshore wind and they'll be trying to hit all of them at the same time i'm still trying to look up what hugen is located northeast of rugen island germany the baltic eagle offshore wind farm will feature 50 vestas v 174 9.5 megawatt turbines over a 43 square kilometer area up in water depths up to 45 meters. Uh, the installation of all 50 monopiles was just completed at the 476 megawatt site. According to Iberdrola, construction of the $570 million Baltic Eagle project is on schedule to be complete by an operation by the end of 2024. Uh, so, Baltic Eagle Wind Farm because that's a cool name, is our Wind Farm of the Week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our lovely weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next time on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.